0: Good morning and welcome to the Tuesday Morning Blitz. It is the off week between the conference championships and the Super Bowl. We're here to get you all geared up for the matchup between Cincinnati and LA, but of course The NFL world moves on in that week, and a lot has gone down that we need to discuss. We teased some of it at the end of the week last week, but we have to start off with the controversy that's rocking the NFL right now. Obviously, the Brian Flores lawsuit, Brian Flores alleging a history of racist conduct and hiring and firing practices by not only the NFL, but also individual teams naming specifically the Dolphins, who he used to work for, the New York Giants, and the Denver Broncos, uh, Kale, tough intro there, but uh, this is <laughs> this is a, a thing that we've known about the league for a long time, and we'll break down some of the specifics, but initial thoughts when you saw that Brian Flores was making his choice to go out and try to get something from the NFL?
1: I mean, good on him. It makes sense. Like We know the diversity hires in the NFL have been an issue for a while. Uh, you've seen it this past coaching cycle, where of the six confirmed head coaches uh, prior to uh, Mike McDaniel of the San Francisco 49ers, who identifies as mixed race. Uh, all of them are white. Just across the board, entirely white. Head coaching hires, we're seeing uh, more uh, progress in other places in terms of uh, hiring coordinators of color, uh, hiring a few general managers of color. Sashi Brown m- going to the Ravens to be their uh, president of football operations. Uh, is the first, I believe, the first uh, president of football operations of color in the NFL's history. Uh, so there's progress being made in other places. But no matter what, whether it's Rooney Rule, whether it's uh, just an attempt to increasingly diversify a league that is 70% black, uh, there has been such a deep, deep struggle to try and figure out how to hire more head coaches of color. And... It's, it's really brave of Ryan Flores to basically go out there and put his career on the line. He was originally, you know, in the running for the Texans head coaching job. He's seemingly no longer involved in that uh, because of the lawsuit. I'm not sure what, uh, but he was no longer named. But you could see immediately, like, we, we saw the statement from the NFL saying this lawsuit has no merit. And then a few days later... Goodell says we're doing, they're woefully underperforming on the diversity front and head coaching hires, and all of a sudden the Houston Texans now drop Josh McCown from contention and now have two black head coaching hires. I am not saying this is any sort of, like, these are two coaches that
0: genuinely have merit. jobs, But
1: you can see immediately how the tune of the NFL changes the second they get called out on their diversity hiring.
0: No, it's, I think the number one thing we identify here is the bravery of Flores because he knows that there's a very solid chance that he's not only going to be passed over for a hire in this current cycle, but in many cycles to come when he knows he's, you know, sort of marked himself as the guy who's called the league out. And I'll just zoom out here and take a look at kind of the general timeline of how all this goes down. First of all, Flores, one of the main reasons the lawsuit comes to fruition is the text from Bill Belichick that he gets uh, accidentally congratulating Brian Dable on his hire by the New York Giants. That comes three days before Brian Flores' interview with the Giants, which he thought he had a legitimate shot at. And a lot of that comes from this Rooney rule that we've had in the league for almost 20 years at this point. When the Rooney rule came to fruition in 2003, there were three black head coaches in the NFL. Three very qualified coaches in Tony Dungy, Marvin Lewis, and Herm Edwards, and before Mike McDaniel, who identifies as biracial, gets hired by the Dolphins last night, we had one after this hiring cycle saw two get fired. So it's completely the opposite of progress. And when Brian Flores drops the lawsuit, mere hours later, the NFL releases a statement that says, quote, we will defend against these claims, which are without merit. So... That's. Have you even had time to read through the lawsuit before you've decided that it's without merit? And Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, uh, who was also alleged to have given $100,000 to Flores for each game he lost in his first year, or offered, not accepted. Uh, And John Elway, who is alleged to have interviewed Flores... Looking clearly disheveled, Flores speculated that he may have been over and an hour late to their meeting. Both of them immediately said, You know, these are lies flat out. Um, I mean,
1: even the Giants, too, like John Mara came out and said he was in favor of getting Brian da- or uh, Brian Flores. But if he was the one that was pushing to get Brian Flores and they hire Brian Dable, you the owner clearly did not want Brian Flores because what the owner says goes,
0: yeah, three uh, a handshake agreement and then. Roger Goodell seems to drop a weird grenade in this bunker two days later. He says, We must acknowledge that particularly with respect to head coaches, the results have been unacceptable. We will reevaluate and examine all policies, guidelines, and initiatives relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion, including as they relate to gender. I mean, it's just the NFL sticking its foot in its mouth again. And are are these words from Goodell even encouraging when we haven't seen any history of positive change being made? That's my question.
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels like that statement is clearly... That's the worst possible thing they could have for this lawsuit. I mean, it feels like an admission of guilt without admitting guilt. My, The complicated thing with this lawsuit is that it's not just Flores... Uh, Flores specifically designed it as a class action lawsuit, which means that uh, it's open to any other coach of color who's felt personally maligned in this league uh, can also get involved. And the first person we saw out of that is former Cleveland Browns head coach Hugh Jackson, who in a similar circumstance to Brian Flores talked about being paid for losses and feeling as though he was a scapegoat for the Cleveland Browns as they went through a rough patch in their team's redevelopment or team's rebuilding. Uh, Hugh Jackson's now recanted his statement claiming that he was getting paid for wins to uh, sort of downgrade it to just saying uh, the ownership of the Cleveland Browns presented me with a four-year plan and uh, nowhere in the first two years was winning in the cards of that plan at all. Now, he did have a 3-36-1 head coaching record, so there wasn't really wins anywhere in that plan, Uh, but not to make light of it, Flores' lawsuit needs more than just simple statements from Hugh Jackson. He needs legitimate evidence. He needs multiple voices. He needs multiple head coaches involved. It can't just be the two of them against the league and 32 billionaires because they'll lose.
0: It's the problem in this entire situation is without specific hard evidence of discrimination, you might allow what's clearly an observable pattern to slip by year after year. And it has been slipping by year after year. And while we might speculate that certain head coach uh, candidates of color are only getting interviews because of the Rooney rule, there's not really a way, like there's not a paper trail in that case. And there's not a paper trail that qualified coaches are being passed over for opportunities that they have the experience for. And nowadays, part of the issue as well is everyone says, you know, if he's been a coordinator for so long, you know, why hasn't he ascended to the level of head coach? But then also guys don't have enough experience to get those coordinator jobs, so they're really cutting qualified coaches of color off at both ends. And you see people like O'Connell from the Rams who, not to say that he's not a qualified candidate, his resume is much shorter than uh, Brian Flores or someone like Eric Bieniemy and he gets immediately gets a job in this upcoming cycle. We saw the same thing last year with Nick Sirianni, and it just continues to cycle itself through. So I guess the first step is acknowledging that there is a problem. So if we're gonna give Roger Goodell credit for anything, it's for coming out and making that statement. But ultimately, I think what a lot of people with higher knowledge of the league have said is this is an owner's problem, and There aren't many people who have influence with the owners. It's their shareholders and it's maybe the commissioner. So, I guess the one thing to maybe take solace in is if the commissioner can apply pressure and not just in public statements, you know, legitimately behind closed doors in public statements moving forward, apply pressure to the owners to try and actually create positive change in their hiring practices, then I don't see anything being done about it again. It's just going to continue cycling through.
1: A lawsuit of this magnitude, in theory, should be the pressure necessary. I mean, you immediately saw the NFL statement following it, the proper Goodell statement, not just the immediate dismissal that felt so uh, contingent with being the defendant in a lawsuit, but uh, Goodell's statement about their struggles with diversity hires and then the immediate reactions of the Texans and potentially the Saints because right after that the Saints also n- announced that Eric the enemy I believe would be a part of their head coaching cycle and like immediately those two hiring cycles became more diversity oriented and it's not it feels it just feels like a big a big immediate swing because the Texans seemed so set on having Josh McCown with literally zero coaching experience period as their head coach prior to actually doing that.
0: Yeah, I don't know what to make of the Texans. They're sort of the weird wild card in all this because nobody could have looked at Josh McCown other than the Texans before this head coaching cycle and decided that he was a legitimate candidate for any of these hires. But, Lovey Smith was already in the building. You know, he was already on the staff for them. He's been a head coach multiple times in the past in the NFL and then ended up getting fired from Illinois for poor performance, so... You know, is he the guy that you're really going to get jazzed about from a diversity standpoint at 63 years old and, you know, with a history of, you know, he's he's not had a bad career as a head coach, but he hasn't had success in quite some time. There are other qualified coaches of color out there like a Biennemi, like a Brian Flores before the lawsuit, even like a Patrick Graham who got a couple head coaching interviews with Minnesota and a couple other teams who seemingly are either being passed over or just haven't been priorities in this hiring cycle so whether the Texans are a case to really show like show that things are trending in the right direction I don't know and, and that's part of the problem with the Texans in general is they're so dysfunctional that I just don't know whether or not they can ever be used as evidence in any NFL oriented conversation.
1: No that's fair it, it's, <laughs> it's it's the Texans are a mess and I shouldn't be using them as some Benchmark of the NFL immediately trying to sweep diversity issues under the rug and using the Texans' head coaching hires as the basis for that. But it, it, it was just a weird immediate example where, like, you know, Schefter tweets about uh, the new head coaching opportunities and the new interviewees for the Texans mere hours after Goodell says it's a major issue for them. I, I don't want to harp on it, but it, it, it was something that Stood out to me, and uh, just from what I was reading on Twitter, a number of other voices as well.
0: And the Texans, of course, we should mention, are still owned by the McNair family, who, of course, Bob McNair no longer alive, but when he was alive, said some of the most messed up racist things you could possibly say about NFL players. So, we've got a long way to go in terms of making more uh, genuine progress in terms of head coach hiring, but... Switching gears slightly, we should talk about the actual coaches that are being hired in this cycle. So as Kale mentioned, now seven hires have been finalized. It looks as if the Texans may be on their way to making Lovie Smith at eighth, but just running down the list, we talked about Brian Dable last week and the Giants and how we thought that was a very solid hire. Obviously, there's more to that story because of what happened with the Flores piece, but Regardless, we both think Brian Dable was more than due for a head coaching job in this cycle beyond that, who stands out to you as somebody who really landed themselves in a good situation and and seems to be uh you know with a potential situation to make change in year one
1: it's really going to depend on the people they surround him with in the building and by that I mean if you can get a quarterback Nathaniel Hackett from the Green Bay Packers offensive coordinator moving to Denver. Denver last year was uh, predicted basically as having a Super Bowl caliber roster without a quarterback, which is lofty for them. But you know, with the secondary that they've assembled both through the draft and through free agency with the receiving core that they currently have, uh, their offensive line is continuing to improve. Their front seven is extremely dominant. Uh, Javante Williams in the backfield, they'll probably won't have Melvin Gordon this year uh, as he hits free agency, but they're very set on potentially making a run if they can get a quarterback, and taking both the offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach from Green Bay in a potential Aaron Rodgers uh, departure could make things very interesting. Uh, Just It feels like that's what Denver's set up for, just to be the front runner in any sort of free agency with Aaron Rodgers. And that leads to speculation, but if they can land a quarterback in the draft to develop, a young guy, uh, if they can bring in anyone other than Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke, even if they want to fix Drew Locke because, you know, I feel like a lot of these quarterbacks are, uh, are you know, teams that are hiring new coaches with questionable quarterbacks. I'm looking at the New York Giants currently. And potentially the Miami Dolphins but these are teams now looking to try and stay the path and uh, resurrect these poor quarterback performances let's say for lack of a better term uh, but this is like this is the way to do it get them in an offensive system that works really well that worked in spite of uh, dearth weapons in Green Bay I mean outside of Devontae Adams the second best receivers who Alan Lazard, Marquez Valdez-Scantling? No. This is, you're now working with Jer- uh, Jerry, Judy, and Cortland Sutton and Noah Fan. I think you'll be just fine. Like Having the weapons to do this is, go- is going to be what makes it fun. Having a quarterback's coach specifically to get involved with this as well is going to be a huge deal. Uh, I think this is probably the best situation
0: for any uh, quarterback vac- vacancy available. And I, just to continue with that point, Interested to see what the quarterback market looks like this offseason. We will do at some point like a full NFL quarterback QB carousel landing spot podcast. That's that's coming. You know, we're going to do that because we had an Instagram live stream where we talked for 45 minutes about quarterbacks. I was and it was... We should like cut that up at some point and <laughs> upload it because that was good. That was good
1: material that's now like lost to the ether. It's, yeah, it's
0: sticking there on the 2TV Sports Instagram if anyone wants to go back and watch it. Uh, we also cut a great clip from that live stream where Cale said he still liked the Panthers when they were sitting at 5 and 6. Listen, hear me <laughs> out. Cam Newton had one good game and I was sold. <laughs> um, beyond that, though, we, we find ourselves in this familiar position, I think, where there are fewer quarterbacks than there are open quarterback jobs, especially with Tom Brady retiring. Basically, the entire NFC South is looking for quarterbacks. The Broncos, the Steelers, the the newly minted Washington Commanders. Uh, all of these are, are destinations where our QBs could potentially be headed. Um, very interested to see where Jimmy Garoppolo ends up, but we'll put that all in the memory vault and file it away for another podcast. Let's talk about Doug Peterson. Given what happened what transpired with Jacksonville in their search and their apparent refusal to even explore the notion of getting rid of Trent Balky in order to hire Byron Leftwich is Doug Peterson in some respects a good hire for this team. It's
1: a good consolation prize. Like it, that's that's the only way you could chalk it up. Uh getting a genuine young hire that Bruce Arians is basically given the blessing to. Uh, Byron Lefkowitz was quite literally the only person that Bruce Arians was ever willing to hand off play-calling duties to. Uh, there's a reason he did that. He is an up-and-coming... Uh, he's eventually going to be a phenom in this league if and when he gets a chance, because it's more likely when than if. Uh, he's just that good, and he's... Uh, I, I get the weapons that he was dealing with in Tampa, but just the core system that he had looks like the future of this league. The high throwing rates, the offense that they were constructing, the past concepts they were getting into, the creativity they had, getting running backs involved. It's, this is the future of this league. And, it's Byron and you could have had that for Trevor Lawrence, but you didn't want to because his one stipulation was don't have Trent Balky in the building. And for some, some reason. Trent Baalke must have the biggest dirt in the world on ShotCon. Like, it's it's got to be insane. <laughs> There's no reason he should be sticking in this building for, and, like, ShotCon should be sticking his neck out for this guy. That being said, Peterson's a fine, he's a good uh, consolation hire. It's listen, What he was able to do with Carson Wentz is impressive. He made, you know, Nick Foles look like he was worth a four-year, $88 million with the Chicago Bears, like he, he's a like he's good at working with quarterbacks. He's a good offensive mind. Uh, the players in Philadelphia absolutely loved him, uh, so it should be good for them. And there's at least a story about how uh, because of Peterson, Khan is now looking to hire a VP of football operations who will uh, who Balky will report to, and it will be like an intermediary voice between like the gm and the ownership it's a weird deal but at least it relieves bulky of some of his pull and yeah i think i think peterson's a fine hire i think peterson's like a good hire but it's not as good as what byron left, could have been.
0: so an interesting thing you bring up is he's a good offensive mind and that's that's like such a trend in head coach hiring right now and we probably should have brought I mean, this up earlier way. but it's it's another way in which all these minority coaches are siloed because a majority of the coordinators who are coaches of color are defensive. You see very qualified defensive coaches in this cycle, such as Todd Bowles, such as D'Amico Ryans, not even really getting serious looks and younger offensive minded white coaches getting these jobs. And that's been a thing that's been going on for the better half of a decade now. So... That probably had a place earlier in the podcast, but I just wanted to mention that as well. Like while we're talking about all this and while we're hopeful for these offensive hires, it is just another way in which this perpetual cycle of, you know, white coaches rising to the top, maybe or maybe not having the correct qualifications is is just continuing on and on in this league. I completely agree. Before we
1: diverge through a new head coach, can I give you two Uh, more bits on the Jaguars coaching situation. Please. Uh, One, it's very funny to me that uh, Doug Peterson is now just able to market himself as like a culture fixer because he's now replaced (laughs) uh, one Chip Kelly and two Urban Meyer. Just by default being a normal guy, he immediately becomes a culture changer.
0: Yeah. In locker rooms. Great chin. Chin. Hall of Fame chin on Doug Peterson.
1: Crimson chin. (laughs) Two... Speaking of Urban Meyer, did you know he's top five all time in Jaguars head coaching wins? Uh,
0: in wins? In like wins. F- by by virtue of the fact that he has multiple of them. Yeah. How many head coaches have the Jaguars had? Five. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that's that's a trick question there. And that and by the way, five coaches in what like twenty five years as a franchise is kind of tragic, especially when Jack Del Rio maybe took up half of those years. So. Let's hope that Urban drops out of the top five very quickly. Why don't we talk about Chicago a little bit? Oh, I'm bit?
1: sorry. No, they've had seven, <laughs> a- a- including Peterson, so six.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, he so beat was- out Mike Mullark. Oh, so he beat out – oh, gosh. Okay. Tragic situation all around. Let us move on to talk about a team that is flying way under the radar for what we would have expected a, a couple months ago in their – firing and hiring situation in the Chicago Bears, bring in Matt Eberflus, who I'm gonna be honest, you know, not that he's not a qualified head coaching candidate, but, you know, coming from the Colts being a defensive mind, I didn't know a lot about him, didn't expect him to be coming up and and getting a hire in this cycle, particularly from a team with a second year quarterback. So how do we grade this higher? Uh
1: I agree to pretty strongly. Iberflus has been a an name that's been floated around in uh, hiring cycles for a number of years now. Uh, it was kind of not necessarily like a long time coming, but he was uh, expected at some point to get some kind of work. Uh, he was especially in circles last year uh, where there was a potential for him to get hired. Uh, and Iberflus has already come out and stated, we're going to build the offense around Justin Fields. Now the question is, who's building that offense? It's Luke Getze, the quarterback's coach for the Green Bay Packers. I was formerly mistaken when I was talking about the Denver Broncos, but yeah, Getze is going to be building the offense for the Chicago Bears. Uh, the one uh, substitution he gets is now he gets play calling duties in addition to actually being able to work at the quarterback. Uh, what system will work for Justin Fields is the question. I have no doubt that Iberflus is a mind who can absolutely bring together a defense. He brought together, he had a number of Colts defenders overperforming last year when they weren't necessarily expected to be that good, or, or as good as they were defensively. Uh, their team was basically a run game in defense. It was. It felt like you know old school rock'em, sock'em football. Uh, and Iberflus can absolutely bring that energy back to the Bears. I'm not saying they're going to be the 85 Bears, But, you know, the Bears have always, at least in my lifetime, when they've been good, they've been known for defense. So it starts from that end. If you can just make it work on offense, and I'm very curious to see what kind of, if he's bringing a floor system in there, if he's uh, got his own wrinkles that he's going to be implementing. I'm very curious to see how this works out in terms of Getze's involvement and how he works around. Fields is that system of, of a floor system best for fields to work with, or are they going to build something whole cloth from scratch to work around fields? I'm not sure, but I'm excited to find out.
0: No, I think with the Bears, there's, there's reason for hope, and if Aaron Rodgers leaves this division, I think that hope kind of ends up becoming multiplied, but we've been excited about the Bears before, and in recent years, they've taken what seem to be good things and done a really good job messing them up. So you hope that new blood in the building is the correct answer. I don't know if Eberflus—he was certainly among the defensive coordinators who deserve consideration in this coaching cycle. I'm not sure if he was the right one for this team, but I'm willing to see it bear out, see him get a shot in this particular case. Ah. (laughs) But I, I just don't know. And, and the weapons are a huge concern for me too. next year. I mean, the Bears have signed 19,000 tight ends in the past two years, and none of them have worked out. Allen Robinson fell off the face of the earth last year, and Demir Bird was one of the few bright spots in a passing game. And Patriots let me tell you something. <laughs> if you see Demir Bird near the top of a receiving chart, you've got a serious problem internally. So I think there's a lot to fix with the Bears, but I'm willing to commit a modicum of hope towards their situation. I think the last thing I want to talk about in terms of head coaching is where do the Saints go from here? You know, is Biennami the guy for them? Is there anyone else who makes more sense? And, and what sort of timeline are we even looking at here? Because, you know, I, they, in some respects, they sort of have their pick with everything else being sewn up, but they've still got to find someone in time to start thinking about, you know, next year's roster.
1: Depends what direction I want to go. Uh, Chef's most recently reported that the top three are uh the aforementioned byron lefwich uh lions dc aaron glenn and new orleans dc dennis allen could do the in-house hire with dennis allen uh i'm, I'm befuddled as to why anyone from the lions would be up for a coaching <laughs> job at the moment uh but hire byron lefwich i like get like if you're doing full rebuild get a guy in there you're willing to stick with for the long haul and build a strong foundation because look at what they had last year. They had, I mean, even in a Sean Payton system, they had Jameis working with absolutely no one, and they were getting wins. They they trounced the Green Bay Packers early. Uh, they really beat up on New England. Like, they beat up on some decent teams. Tampa. Yeah, Tampa too. They have beat up on some teams that ended up being pretty good, but that
0: Tampa one was, what, 9 nothing. No, that was the Jameis one. They were up by, like, 20 points. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. I'm thinking of the other one. Uh, but, yeah, this is... Like, you could either go with the success of the defense that they've been able to build and continue to build because that roster's stacked. Like we said earlier, like it's, it's different than the Broncos because the Broncos had receivers uh, and the Broncos had other weapons. And, like, Alvin Kamara was less effective because he was taking on a disproportionate role because they've always had two backs, but now he's the lead back. So now he's wasting carries running inside dives that he normally wouldn't be running in his most productive years. Uh, so if they can get a second, like, this is a much more maligned Saints offense than one would like to believe, uh, and certainly not comparative to the uh, work that was going on in Denver leading up to the Bridgewater lock year. But I still think you go offense just to figure out what you can build with, you know, Marquez Callaway. if you can get Michael Thomas back in the fold, if you can, like, maximize Alvin Kamara. I still think going offense is the way here just because. You can beat up on a lot of teams with just the core defense you already have, and I'm convinced that Byron Lefkowitz could bring in someone else to also be able to run a competent defense.
0: I I agree, and not that I'm a habitual viewer of the Pat McAfee show, particularly when a certain long-haired quarterback comes on there to espouse certain virtues, but I did see a clip the other day where Ian Rappaport went on there and talked about how the Saints could – Kind of weirdly, be a surprise destination where Aaron Rodgers might end up, and they are seventy-one million dollars over the cap. But Rappaport Rappaport seemed to think that they could somehow reconcile that, and that Mickey Loomis has kind of wiggled his way out of cap hell before. Uh, And I don't know. There's there's not that many places that end up making sense for Rodgers that aren't Green Bay, so that might be one to just kind of keep on the back burner, um, especially if they do go offense in their head coaching search. Um, let's also talk about Mike McDaniel. We, we touched on him earlier in the show purely from a, uh, the, the standpoint of him being a person of color. But from a football perspective, we both think this hire is pretty much a home run as well. And I, I know that he was, you know, sort of the offensive mastermind behind some of these run schemes in San Francisco the past few years. But what else is he bringing to the table for the Dolphins in this head coaching cycle?
1: I mean, it's just the fact... It's not just the fact
0: that he worked with Kyle
1: Shanahan and seemingly everywhere he went, he brought McDaniel along with him.
0: And another member of that 2013 Washington redacted coaching staff with also Sean McVay.
1: I mean, it's going to get easier to list who wasn't involved
0: (laughs) with that team eventually. And Matt LaFleur, of course. Yeah, exactly,
1: compared to who was involved. They were just... Too many, too many names at that point.
0: And too he, many for them not to be good, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of stupid.
1: Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, his his passing game creativity has, I mean, I mean, San Francisco has been known as, uh, like, creativity on the run side of things. But, I mean, how do you get Debo involved the way he has? How do you, uh, you know, integrate Brandon Laeuk and Kyle Shanahan seemingly thought he was either non-existent or offensive poison? Uh, Like he's done some really creative things. He's made Jimmy Garoppolo look awesome. And I think if you're going to look uh, to try and make a uh, mid-level quarterback look exceptional, uh, you know, if you're going to get a guy like that for Tua, you know, Mike is kind of your guy. I I think he's had a really awesome opportunity to just pick the brain of Kyle Shanahan as a head coach uh, or as like working with Kyle Shanahan for forever and bringing in that level of his system and just another extension of um shanahan mcveigh-esque offense is you know it's where the nfl has been headed offensively for a number of years and this is probably at least you know it feels as though it's the most worthy hire of these it's not necessarily like the uh what is it zach taylor made a comment uh leading up to uh, or following the win against uh, the Chiefs when he figured out him and the Rams would be in the Super Bowl and he'd be working with his former colleague, Sean McVay. He said that everyone's had a cup of coffee with Sean McVay who's basically gotten a head coaching job at this point and he's no different. But this is, I think, an arguably better version than that just because of how much time he's spent you know. Moved to Kyle Shan, he did a brief stint with the Cleveland Browns but got
0: back in the building uh, when uh, Kyle Shanahan moved to the Falcons. Uh, no, Shanahan was there with him in Cleveland as well. That was his, oh, those my were gosh, his Cleveland yeah. days. Yeah. Those were
1: Shanahan's <laughs> Cleveland. I forgot Shanahan was all in Cleveland. There
0: was a great clip circulating the other day of uh, Shanahan and McDaniel having a fake argument with Johnny Manziel so he could then run down the field and catch a pass. Oh, now, of course, I remember. that was called back for an illegal formation, but it was fun. Yes. <laughs> no, I
1: do remember that. Uh,
0: but yeah, he's been with
1: Shanahan for forever, so if anyone's going to learn through osmosis, uh, it's the guy that looks like he smoked pot all day and played Tony <laughs> Hawk's Pro Skater 2 uh, in
0: college the entire time, but is seemingly one of the biggest offensive minds in football. I'm really excited just because Mike McDaniel is one of the most likable, easy-to-root-for people if you ever just hear him talk in a press conference, and the the journalist in me just always screams like oh likable in a press conference like get this guy a head coaching job see what he can do it's a bad habit you shouldn't just go based off of press conferences but it's my it's my weakness as a as a follower of head coaching hires it's why
1: we're dan campbell guys come on (laughs) come
0: on now um i think it's just been a insane cycle i mean nine jobs being open is probably a record at this stage um But there'll be more developments and we'll continue to stay up to date on them as this podcast rolls along let's talk about tom brady kale we were gonna we teased him at the end of last week's episode the guy who's brought us maybe double the joy of any other football player in the history of football uh is officially retiring he came into the league when both of us were a full two years old so it's really the end of an era for us and and forgive us, listeners, if we might briefly indulge ourselves in some uh, low-key nostalgia. Uh, Kale, finest Tom Brady memories from his 22 years of work. I mean, where do I start, Jackson? Like, I've been to just a
1: handful of football games in my life, and they've all somehow been some of Tom Brady's most historic moments. My first football game ever uh, was the game at... MetLife Stadium in 2007, where the Patriots clinched their 16-0 season. Uh, I got a digital camera for Christmas that year, along with two tickets to the game. And somewhere on that uh, tiny, tiny Nikon digital camera, I have uh, Brady's uh, pass downfield to Randy Moss, where they both set respective uh, season-long touchdown records. Uh, He's... I mean, I also went to the Deflategate game against the Colts. I went to the Butt Fumble game against the New York Jets. I went to the Bart Scott game against the New York Jets, uh, where they lost that AFC Divisional round. Uh, I've I've been to quite a number of elite Brady performances and Brady downfalls. It's been uh, absolute... On- like I mean, one of my favorite football memories, period, is the Malcolm Butler interception, uh, which... Brady was played no small part in orchestrating that comeback uh, down.
0: What what was their worst margin? 24-14 against an all-time defense, or so we thought at the time. Uh, and just Or so we thought. That man, was still the legion it was, of Boom. It was no, really that counts. A, that counts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he I believe the the stats on that game where he went 13 of 15 for like 140 yards in the fourth quarter, two touchdowns. Uh, Bunch of huge third down conversions to Edelman and Gronk. It was it was sick.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, this past weekend I was
0: inundating Jackson with texts about the fact that NFL
1: Network was playing uh, the best of Brady. Basically, uh, they played his uh, his divisional round against the Ravens. The
0: underrated, uh, incredible game. Yeah,
1: the Super Bowl forty nine, Super Bowl fifty one, uh, the AFC Championship in twenty eighteen. The I mean the chief super bowl from last year just all every I, I didn't watch the earlier windows of it but just every uh conceivable massive playoff game that he had had but they showed a graphic during the ravens game that i remember is that uh brady's patriots were the only team to come back uh, to orchestrate multiple comebacks down 10 plus points in the playoffs
0: in a single playoffs, right? Like, that was...
1: No, that was just in the Ravens' one. It was, they were the only team to do multiple... Oh, runs. in
0: one game, yeah. It's just a sick game. Like, I... Yeah. I There were a number of years there that will um, somewhat be forgotten where the Patriots kind of kept coming up short in those types of games, and they obviously had great regular seasons. Brady had a whole Hall of Fame career just in the late aughts and early tens, but 2014 felt like a moment to me, and that... I think will be the Brady year I remember the most. Because that Ravens game, they just looked like they had all of their 2012 witchy juju Joe Flacco can't do anything wrong. And they go out 14 nothing before we even settle into our seats. Brady claws his way back, spikes the ball on his quarterback, sneak touchdown, throws one to Gronk. It was awesome. Then the Ravens just come right back. They That whole game I was terrified of Joe Flacco, which is really ironic in hindsight thinking about the last few times we've seen joe flacco on a football field but guy looked unstoppable that day they go back down 28 14 and then brady works them back another great touchdown drive 28 21 and then the double pass felt like a moment in time to me oh my God. just like one of the biggest like i i can't believe mcdaniels finally pulled that out of the bag of tricks and it worked and it was absolutely sublime um, that game, and the touchdown to Brandon LaFell to win it, uh, and still the moment that sticks out most to me from that game is fourth quarter, Ravens fourth down, driving to try and take the win, and the timeout that gets called by, Bilice- uh, by, by Bill Belichick to set up the second round of the outfield's "Your Love" over the loudspeakers at Gillette Stadium. I think that is the loudest I've ever heard a Gillette Stadium crowd through my TV speakers, and. I just can't get enough of that game.
1: The clip circulated on Twitter. I sent it to Jackson. We had a good laugh about it, and then I watched it in person. In the flow of the game, it's it felt like storybook-esque. And it's crazy because it's not storybook-esque because they immediately convert that oh, yeah. fourth and three. Like, that that Ravens team went three for three on fourth downs that day and could not have been closer to actually upsetting the Patriots. It was, it was rough sledding, but that, I mean... That was when you knew that that was going to be, like, this was a special Patriots team. Then yeah. they steamrolled them 45-7 at home. My dad and I were watching the game, the pouring rain. <laughs> Jackson and I were sharing, uh, I was sharing pictures of Jackson. Jackson was commenting how I, like, was experimental with facial hair because I had, like, a paper-thin go Like, that's how long Brady's been in our lives. I have pictures of me five years old in a Brady jersey, and I have pictures of me, like, going through puberty with, like, watching the game with my dad in Foxborough. Like it's run the game. And and I was able to watch you know my, our last Brady games at Newhouse when I'm in grad school. It's it's going from 2 to 24 now. I mean, what a we'll never have another quarterback like it. There'll never be another run like it. And even if there are matchups against or sorry, even if there are debates about new generation quarterbacks Uh, it's not quite like Jordan and LeBron where they never had crossover. I mean, Brady's 2-0 against Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs when it matters. Like, 2018 AFC Championship, 2021 Super Bowl, that's all you need, I feel like.
0: And that's pretty insane just that we think about the fact that Brady had this 20-year career in New England and then moved on at the age of 43 and won a Super Bowl immediately the year after yeah it's i almost don't know whether to feel pride about that because it wasn't with the patriots but he's still like our guy it was oh, yeah. it was very it was very conflicting for me emotionally i was not one of those you know let's buy a half tampa half new england jersey type of fans no, don't be tacky. it was it was very jarring to see him in a different uniform and to see him have the, the kind of success he had In those two seasons at that age but ultimately when it comes down to it the guy's a patriot and what an unbelievable patriots career he had finally 45 minutes in we come to the topic that people may have been tuned in for the entire time which is the super bowl that we are going to be graced with a mere six days from now and it's a matchup that both of us have really struggled to get a read on I think we've we've been over previews. We've been looking at the football outsiders database and I think I know which way I'm leaning, but I'm still I still reserve the right to go back on it if anything you say really sticks out in my head to me. So Rams, Bengals, what do you think this game comes down to?
1: It it really depends on what way you look at it. Because there's the statistic metrics that these teams function under uh, and their, like, you know, on-paper performances this year. Football Outsiders puts together uh, their little box score bug uh, that they have at the top of their website shows the head-to-head matchups between teams, and it basically, God Blossom puts together their entire database in comparison, uh, uh, whether it's specific, like, total DVOA, offense versus defense, breaking it down by down in play, uh, breaking it down by down in distance. And in nearly every conceivable matchup that there is, the L.A. Rams have some kind of advantage. Uh, uh, Jackson and I were going through this beforehand, and there are very few matchups on here where Cincinnati holds a distinct advantage. Uh, Like, the Rams have the better... uh, pass defense compared to the Cincy's pass offense. Uh, The Rams have a better rushing defense compared to the Cincy's rushing offense. The Rams offense is better uh, in the first half and the second half and in late and close DVOA compared to the Cincinnati defense in the exact same situations. Uh, Literally, any most ways you slice it, nearly, I'd say between two-thirds and three-quarters of all scenarios, Los Angeles has the advantage. But then we go to, like, the anecdotal side of things (laughs) and the things that are not statistically backed, and, man, the Cincy team's hot. Like, that's all you can say. But, like, how do you reconcile the Cincinnati offensive line against this Rams front seven? How do you reconcile the fact that, yeah, the... Mm -hmm. And the, yeah, the Cincinnati Bengals have a a sick receiving core in everything they have, uh, between Boyd and Chase and Higgins. Uh, but now you're going to go. Like, now you're going up against Jalen Ramsey. Like Jalen Ramsey versus Chase is going to be a historic Super Bowl matchup. Either way it ends up going, uh, it's going to be fantastic to watch. But I'm just, I think the on paper numbers of it all and just, like, this feels David Goliath-y. Like, and not to get, like, too hyperbolic, because the Super Bowl sometimes runs into traditional narratives, and David versus Goliath is the most cliche of them all. Like, this is scrappy, young, year-early, like, fun-to-watch, fun-to-root-for team that isn't quite up to snuff with what the Rams have to bring. And there are, like, some situations where, like, Stafford's gonna throw that duck and, hmm. like, Stafford's going to throw that lob to, you know, just 30 yards deep in the middle of the field. And, you know, a Chidobia Woozie or a Mike Hinton is going to have a lot better chance of catching that. than a Tart Like Like, that's just the way it's going to come down to. I think there's, like, some good counterplay.
0: Do you count on Eli Apple to catch it?
1: No, I don't. <laughs> No, I don't, Jackson. I don't at all. <laughs> but I'm counting on literally anyone other than Eli Apple to catch it. Uh, yeah, like this feels like it's a it's a like narratively great matchup that could be really exciting. That being said, uh, if you can still get this game at four and a half Rams, uh, I like Bengals plus four and a half. I like Rams money. If you have the balls to middle this, middle it and then mess around on some props after the fact. because <laughs> I feel like this is the one game where you have a four and a half point window to actually make some money here because you're getting the other you're not only getting the other side of three, you're getting the other side of four, like which is also a big gambling number just because of how scores break out sometimes. You're getting both those, and I think this is going to be a one score game.
0: The only thing I don't like about that is if you're counting on this game coming down to a field goal, I like the team with the better field goal kicker. But in general, from a narrative perspective, I agree, and I think the head coaching angle is something worth exploring as well, because oh, absolutely. not only are these guys, you know, how many times has it even come down to two coaches that used to be colleagues, but in this particular case, I really think the McVay experience wins the day for me, like... It's his second Super Bowl. We saw that he maybe wasn't ready for the moment in the first one. All those clips that came out uh, in the NFL Films documentaries where he was so complimentary of Belichick and just never seemed to quite get a handle on Jared Goff as the game went on. I think he's ready for it this time around. I think he trusts his quarterback much more this time around. I think this is Sean McVay's time. Again, I until like five weeks ago, I'm not even sure I could have picked Zach Taylor out of a police lineup. He's gotten his team here and yet I still can't identify really anything that stands out about him as a head coach in a positive or negative way. I think he really underperformed for a couple years there before he really had the talent to make a run. And this team was 10-7. and seven. I think, like, it's not like they were a dominant regular season team. They've gotten here by beating a Raiders team that we didn't like by beating a Titans team that had a negative DVOA and an all-time second-half collapse from the Kansas City Chiefs. So while I'm taking nothing away from them and how impressive it is that they've gotten here and they've earned every bit of it in what was a loaded AFC playoff field this year, I just don't think – I think momentum resets in the Super Bowl. And I think they have to rely on the merits of their roster and their coaching staff to get it done and – from my Nostradamus perspective, I don't see it happening.
1: There is a second part of me that feels like this is going to be uh, Super Bowl Forty Eight esque where it's just bloodbath. Like, it's just a not-fun game beyond the second quarter. Like, I think there's a small part of me that, like, this is a learning test for Joe Burrow, and this is a game that... Despite all the preparations Jack Taylor may make or despite the defensive adjustments by a relatively cobbled together Cincinnati defense uh, like anything that they can muster, uh, there's something about it where it's like this is such a vaunted Rams team and if like you know Cooper Cup gets like is just streaking down the sidelines nearly uncovered. The thing is like Cincinnati doesn't have like a th- have the depth if you think about the teams they faced. Julio Jones is Shelby's former self, so they've only had to worry about AJ Brown. Uh, they only had to worry about uh, Hunter Renfro, uh, like Tuesday <laughs> Jones, I guess Hunter Renfro. Uh, let's call it that. Uh, and they only had to worry about Tyreek Hill slash Kelsey. Uh, like, let's let. I'm speaking mainly in just receivers here. Uh, you now have to worry about uh, Cooper Cup, Odell Beckham Jr., and Van Jefferson. And Van Jefferson's like a a, a meaningful name in this mix. Uh, you don't have the depth. To cover that, uh, no matter what you say, like Eli Apple's going to be covering someone. That's the bare bones of it. Like that's the only. That's I'm being blunt. Like he's going to have to cover someone, and that guy's going to get is going to torch Eli Apple all day. Uh, you know, they're going to have to block Aaron Donald and Von Miller, and like, just <laughs> the, every every piece of this matchup shows favor Rams. But it's the only thing that's keeping me in it is just the fact that this narrative of like this Bengals team is something that we've never seen before. It's the only reason I like them to keep it interesting. But I think the Rams are just such a better team in this. I don't know what it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, Roger Sherman wrote a really good lead the other day that I like so much I'm going to borrow it here. Um, like, Imagine if you pulled someone out of 2018 and told him that, Matthew Stafford was going to go to a Super Bowl, and the only thing keeping him from potentially winning his first ring would be the Cincinnati Bengals. Like, What what would you have said to me if I had told you that three years ago? And does it speak a little bit to the fact that the Rams, while in hindsight it might seem almost intuitive that they got here based on the roster they built and the upgrade they had at quarterback in the offseason – Does that kind of cover up the fact that they, you know, had to get some breaks of their own to get here and that, you know, Stafford did have a lot of bumps along the road this year and this offense did lose Robert Woods and took a step back at times. Um, This defense hasn't been great in, like, third and mid situations. You know, it's not the super team that maybe we're building it up to be in our heads because it fits the matchup narrative.
1: It's not, well, this isn't a super team. It's a top-heavy team, first off. Like, it's just the fact that they have... Like, This star studded cast, and beyond that, they're okay, like they're good. But it's just the fact you have all this top end talent that pushes that middling talent down the rock, like down the depth chart, and all of a sudden you become good by displacement. But no, this is still a good team, like they still held on to a 27 point lead, uh, despite Tom Brady fully erasing it. They didn't, you know, completely blow it, they still, you know beat the 49ers who had completely dominated the rams prior uh you know it picked up genuine wins i think this is a team that like has earned their spot in the super bowl same way the cincinnati Bengals have But i think that like the rams are slightly more battle tested and they've played more top end talent i mean they've played matchups with virtually every good team in the nfc so i think this is a more battle tested team than we will probably give them credit for but
0: yeah both teams have gotten big breaks Gun to head Super Bowl prediction. Ram. Oh, score? Yeah. Give me just give me a score.
1: Oh. I want to keep the middle in there, thirty-one twenty-eight. Uh that eh, feels a little too clean. Uh I like less points, I'll say that. I was the second I said it, I was like, yeah, I like less points. Uh uh Bengals twenty
0: Rams 24. That feels cleaner than 31 28, but I'm going to make it. <laughs> Yeah, I like it somewhere weirdly in the middle. I like, like maybe a score in this Super Bowl or at least like something kind of close to it. I'm not going to middle it cuz I think there is like sort of the potential for the Rams to pull away. I like a weird number. I'm going to say I'm going to say 23 12. Rams. How are you getting tw- is it four <laughs> McPherson field goals? Yeah, yeah. It's it's gonna get really weird. That's my prediction. I've got no. I've got a missed extra point point in two field goals, uh, okay. or like a missed missed two point conversion, not a missed extra point because I don't think McPherson would do that. No. I think
1: no, he's I too think it gets that. weird.
0: Yeah. No. I've got I've got a touchdown where they have to go for two and don't get it, and two McPherson field goals. I like that. That is our final prediction for Super Bowl Fifty Six. We will have all the coverage for you next week. We're going to break down the game. We're going to break down the uniforms. We're going to break down the commercials, which we have uh, a money draft going on among our friends for which commercials will come up first. So we will be heavily we'll invested in We'll break down
1: that. that game for you, too. <laughs> we won't let you play it at home, but we'll tell you about it after.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a magical game that we hope many of you can adapt. But enjoy the Super Bowl. NFL season, you know, it's the longest we've ever had. 272 games in the regular season and now 13 games in the playoffs and this is the final one savor it while you can enjoy the time with your friends long off season coming up so squeeze every moment of life out of the football season that you possibly can can't wait can't wait Bart Scott let's go (laughs) thank you all for tuning in remember to rate subscribe like this podcast if you are on a podcast that has that capability For Kale, I am Jackson, and we'll see you next
1: Tuesday.